Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damien Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. Rebecca Robbins is on vacation, but Adam, as always, is coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And Damien is recording from our newly established New York City Bureau. It is Thursday, July 5th, and here's what's on the docket this week. We like having guests on this podcast, so this week we're pleased to feature a conversation with biotech stock trader and philanthropist Chef Station. Chef will talk about how he got started in the stock trading world and why he believes charitable giving is so important. Happy 4th of July week. That means that the year is half over, so we're going to take a look back at the biggest biotech stories from the past six months and what you should expect for the rest of 2018. Buy, hold, sell. These are the familiar incantations of the sell-side research analyst. But what if the best way to make money in biotech investing is to sell when they recommend you buy or buy when they say sell? Surprisingly, that's the conclusion reached by a Cowan biotech analyst in a particularly candid bit of self-analysis. We'll explore. If you spend any time in the biotech corners of Twitter, you probably know or follow Chef Station for his tweets about biotech stock trading. You might also know Chef for the money he raises for cancer research or the volunteer time he puts in helping kids who have cancer manage their treatments. Chef was in Boston a couple weeks ago and stopped by the stat office for a tour and a chat with Adam. Take a listen. So Chef, thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much for having me. So Chef, you work with some of the big names in cancer research and some of the bigger pharma companies. Tell me how that prepared you for becoming a biotech stock trader. Uh, so basically, you know, having the interest in those companies and seeing kind of the transformation from traditional chemotherapy to immunotherapy sparked my interest. And what I told myself is that if I can learn how to trade, then I can take other individuals and kind of open up what I'm doing and, and you know, show them you know, how to become better traders as well. So I, I started doing that in 2007, and I've been doing that um, ever since. So you had this conversation with your wife in 2007 saying, uh, hey, honey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a biotech stock trader. How well did that go over? She kind of looked at me and said, uh-huh, okay, sure. Once you got started trading, you know, and obviously having to get over the, maybe the, the wife's misgivings about doing this for a living, I mean, was there, was there a trade that you were really successful with or something that like a moment where you thought, I could do this for a living? During that span from 2008 to 2010, where I you know, started with, with a small amount of money and, and grew it pretty substantially, you know, I saw through multiple trades that, that I could do this for a living, that if I really went with solid catalysts and I you know, had a stop out of 50 you know, percent or 20 percent return that, you know, I could do it. So a batting average in baseball of 300 will get you at least consideration for the Hall of Fame. What's it like for a a stock trader? What you want ultimately and what I go for are base hits. I want to be the Derek Jeter of the trading world. There are very few home runs. Home runs require a lot of patience. So I think 20 to 30 percent is more realistic for me. And I think with the way investing is these days where things are, are so volatile, you need to be happy with that. So this was before Twitter, right? How did you communicate with other traders about biotech stocks at that time in those early days? So this was before Twitter. It was actually, I uh, went on a site called Investors Hub and I started a, uh, a blog called uh, Chef Station. From that, traders were able to get on and see you know, what I was discussing, uh, what I was uh, posting about in terms of stocks that looked like they had a future based on uh, DD that I, that I had done. 
So then sometimes traders have, I don't, I don't want to say maybe a bad rep, but like people kind of think of them as just, you know, they look at a, the stock symbol and that's kind of all they know. They look at a chart and a symbol and they're not really getting into kind of what's behind that. But it sounds like for you, I mean, you have that sort of fundamental approach, a little bit of a fundamental approach to kind of knowing what these companies are doing in terms of cancer drug development. I mean, does that sort of play into the trading strategy that you use? It really does. And, you know, looking at the backgrounds of these companies and looking at where uh, science is moving forward. We're seeing traditional chemotherapy, as I've mentioned, move to immunotherapy and looking at management of these companies and what the long-term prospects are for these companies. So a lot of times I, I look long-term and then I try to look um, catalyst term where there's certain events that are going to move um, these companies forward. Uh, it seems like from 2007 to today, that's a long time period. How has trading biotech stocks changed over that period? I mean, how is it different today than what you were doing back in the early days? You see more catalysts. You see companies that are you know, moving into spaces that we've never been into. You're seeing CAR-T therapy. You're seeing gene therapy. You're seeing a lot of technologies that have vastly improved back versus 2007 when I first started trading, and it was just companies that dealt with you know, traditional chemotherapy. Have stocks become more volatile than they were in the old days? It seems like, you know, it seems like volatility in stocks is particularly around catalysts. And how do you deal with that as a trader? And I, I take it you can take advantage of that. You can. You can take advantage of that. And it's also good to know the climate that we're dealing with, the economic climate and the political climate, because there's other things that affect biotech stocks other than, you know, material news. Like sometimes a stock could go up or down based on the economic climate. Um, for instance, right now we're dealing with trade issues. And so, you know, internationally that can affect what stocks do uh, locally. So the other thing that you're known for is being probably the nicest and most generous person that I think I've ever met. You do a lot for charity, fundraising. Tell me a little bit about kind of how that plays and why that's important to you. Well, thank you for that, uh, those nice comments. That has really played a lot into my investing because I have been in the oncology space and I've worked with patients over the years. Uh, and particularly, you know, having children myself, I have a soft spot for kids. As an investor, what I try to do is work with the Children's Cancer Association, which is uh, an organization out of Portland, Oregon that I've supported for a long time. And I tell investors, I say that if they want to you know, follow what I'm doing and see what I'm doing, you know, make a donation to the Children's Cancer Association. So tell us a little bit about what CCA does. So the Children's Cancer Association helps um, parents and families that are having issues paying for their chemotherapy. They offer, you know, free services. Another important service is uh, ChemoPal. Each one is assigned a kiddo and they work with, you know, helping those children get through their chemotherapy by being there breaking them away from just constantly being around chemotherapy. And you, and you participate that. You're, you're a chemo pal, right? Yes. Uh -huh. I've been a chemo pal to six kids, you know, to six boys um, ages 8 to 17. So if people want to contribute to CCA, how do they do that? They're basically on my um, Twitter page, I've got the link to donate, and, you know, that goes straight to the CCA. None of it goes to me, and it goes to a great organization that I've been involved with since 2009. Getting back to the trading stuff, uh, you know, coming up, anything big on the horizon that you're looking at uh, in terms of things that maybe people should be keeping aware of? There's just so many growth prospects that are going on right now with different companies, Bluebird, Sarepta. Juno, uh, Kite. That's basically what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the trends to, to see where biotech is going. And I, I look at investors like Brad Lankar and I see you know, what, what his uh, immunotherapy index is investing in because I think that's going to say a lot to where we go moving forward. 
right, well, thanks a lot for stopping by and chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure being here, and it's a pleasure seeing you again, Adam. So it's the first week of July, which means the year is half over. And in biotech, it has been quite a half year. Most of the conventional wisdom predictions offered at the end of 2017 for the year ahead didn't quite come true. And no one's really certain what lies ahead. So in that spirit, we figured we would run through some of the biggest storylines and surprises from the first half and then provide a preview of the events that we think are going to shape the rest of 2018. So Damien, as I think about the first six months of this year, I think one of the themes that comes to mind is probably the divergence between two of the most widely traded and and looked at exchange traded funds or ETFs in biotech, and that's the XBI and the IBB. One is doing really well and one is sort of doing so-so. Right. And I think digging into the divergence between those two things without getting too into the weeds kind of tells the real story here, which is to say that one of those exchanges is weighted such that big companies and small companies basically count the same. The other is weighted such that big companies count bigger because they're worth more money. And the latter one is the one that's underperforming, which is to say it's being dragged down by what has been this long and perilous path of like investor ennui for the biggest names in biotech. Right. And so we're talking about, you know, the kind of underperformance of the large cap biotechs with the Amgen, Gilead, Biogen, Celgenes of the sector, which have really kind of underperformed expectations, have not done very well. And contrasting to that is the small to mid cap companies that are kind of, you know, those stock prices are outperforming the sector and and doing quite well. And there's just more and more and more of them. I think another subplot to the whole year is that the IPO market has returned to levels not seen in about three years. There have been 33 IPOs so far this year, and the median return on that is roughly 20%, which is better than in years past. So we're kind of reaching this inverse haves and have-nots with respect to stock performance and investor excitement, where generalist investors seem to be not able to get enough of these small and mid-cap companies and buying into these IPOs. But when they gaze upon the Gilead Sciences and Amgens of the world, they just seem to be holding their noses and waiting for some big news to change things. Yeah. And then you can throw sort of mergers and acquisitions activity into that mix, right? I mean, we started this year with really high expectations for a lot of M&A activity. I would say that there hasn't been as much as has been expected, but that really hasn't that hasn't affected the sector as much. I mean, again, we talk about the small and mid cap stocks outperforming. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's still this, again, high expectation that a lot of these companies are going to get acquired in the near future. Well, so for those four horsemen, the big biotech companies, what can they do to change the sentiment? Or are people just tuned out until there's some mega merger that will force them to pay attention again? Yeah, I mean, right now it's clear that kind of the generalist investor out there, you know, which really sort of drives the money flow into biotech is kind of avoiding the large caps, right? They're investing in the smaller, more innovative companies. So I think in terms of the large caps, they need to sort of show the market that they are innovating, that their pipelines are, you know, developing the kinds of drugs that people are getting excited about and are not just sort of living on the glory days of the past. So let's get into maybe some superlatives. Adam, what was, you think, the biggest surprise in biotech in the first half of 2018? I guess I'm a little bit surprised by the fact that efforts to rein in drug pricing have sort of not gone anywhere. We're, we're talking now here in the middle of July, which is, you know, kind of prime time for pharma companies and drug, biotech companies to raise their prices again. And we're seeing that happen now. So, you know, that's really kind of gone nowhere. Somewhat related to drug pricing, one thing that, that kind of came as a surprise to me early this year is that we saw a new generation of biotech drugs that were purported to be blockbusters. And the management teams behind them, like Regeneron and Amgen, 
made efforts, I think, to set prices at levels that the gatekeepers of pharma would find acceptable or responsible. And despite that, at least in early returns, they're still having trouble getting access to patients and getting the revenue on those drugs that have cursed past expensive treatments past. And that story is not over, but the early signs are that there are some problems kind of unfolding in the way big biotech companies get drugs to patients and make money off of them. And that's something I'll definitely be watching for the rest of the year. And I would say another surprise from the first half of the year would be maybe some disappointing results from the much ballyhooed combination cancer immunotherapy programs that we're seeing. You know, we we came out of ASCO in the beginning of June, and I don't think a lot of the sort of the, the much hyped cancer immunotherapy studies that we saw really kind of give us a lot to go on. I mean, I think it's one of those things where we're going to have to wait and see how those things pan out. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the fascinating things is that that field seems to be hitting its sort of difficult middle period where there were some sterling early successes and then a lot of promise for new things. But the star combination coming out of ASCO, as you mentioned, was Merck's Keytruda, which is a fairly new drug, combined with chemotherapy, which is not. And we probably can't have a discussion of the first half of the year without talking about the FDA and Scott Gottlieb. So how do you think he fared? Yeah, Scott Gottlieb has had a really interesting year because in terms of Trump appointees, sort of dance between the raindrops and public perception. There's so many warm, bipartisan compliments of Scott's performance uh, as FDA commissioner since he was sworn in. And then this whole right to try thing came on where Scott, you know, and I want to be careful how I characterize it, but I think he made clear that he saw some of the thinking behind Right to Try, which is a movement to give patients access to drugs that are not yet FDA approved, as maybe stepping on the FDA's authority and sort of charge as the gatekeeper of the populace. And then he kind of got slapped down by Senator Ron Johnson, who is a backer of Right to Try, and hasn't really brought it up since. And so that's painted Scott into sort of an interesting space where he needs to both obviously maintain favor with his boss, President Trump, but also continue his stated goals as this sort of nonpartisan, forward-looking FDA commissioner. I think that's something to watch going forward. All right. So, Damien, let's think ahead to the rest of the year. What's on your watch list? Well, for one, speaking of politics, the midterm elections are happening. And, you know, you mentioned that this drug pricing stuff hasn't gained any real traction in in terms of legislation or apparently informing companies' behavior with respect to raising prices. But that could change. Every district is going to be barraged with campaign ads, and healthcare is a major issue for Americans. So it's not impossible that the bubbling concern over this stuff actually reaches some kind of fever pitch and something happens. And I would say China is something to watch. I mean, there's been a lot of activity, both Chinese investment in U.S. biotech companies, especially some startups. There's a lot of startup and investment activity going on in Chinese pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And then there's the whole Hong Kong IPO scene, which is just getting off the ground. That's something that everyone should be paying attention to. And if you're interested in company-specific events that are going to shape biotech over the next few months, we actually put a bunch of those together. And you can read that over on Stat Plus right now. So imagine you're a biotech analyst on the sell side. That means it's your job to do research on companies and provide it to clients of your investment bank. So you pour over scientific papers, you control F thousands of SEC documents, and you spend hours glad handing with CEOs to get an idea of where a company's actually headed. And then at some point you coalesce all of that work into stock recommendations, buy, sell, hold, whatever. Now imagine you find out that that work might be entirely in vain. That's essentially what happened this week over at Cowan. 
So the analyst there looked at four years of data on sell-side consensus versus actual stock performance. And what they found was that analyst consensus had an inverse relationship with actual trading. Yeah, so basically, the bigger the swing from buy to sell, the better a stock did and vice versa. So that sounds disheartening for the analyst community. Adam, how did they explain that finding? Yeah, so this report, I have to give Karen credit for doing this because obviously it didn't make them look very good. You know, basically what they said was, if you do the opposite of what we say, you'll make money. And so they, they did try to go into some explanation for why that might be true. And one of the things that they said was that generally analysts are reactionary, right? So they're reacting to events that happen instead of sort of being proactive and predicting events. And that's fair, I think, that, you know, ratings are, as you mentioned, reflecting of past performance, not necessarily predicting future performance. But then it kind of underlines the question, why do it anyway? Why go through the trouble of rating stocks and setting price targets if everyone acknowledges how flawed the system is? I think that's been a question that a lot of investors and institutional investors are asking these days. When they talk to a sell-side analyst or they read a sell-side analyst report, I think they, they're probably spending less time or paying less attention to the rating of the stock and the price target, and they're more interested in the information that's being contained in, in the report. That's what the value is. It's really not about stock picking per se. Well, and that gets back to something that we've talked about before, and I know we've both talked to analysts about, which is this sort of like ontological question of like, what are sell-side analysts for really? And I think the answer tends to be, yes, the research gets read and the models are helpful, but what their clients really want is access. And that's, I think, where the sell-side job gets interesting and can be a little bit thankless because there's an inherent conflict of interest there. When analysts are being honest with you, they'll say that some management teams are a little thin-skinned. So if you put out a research note taking issue with their behavior or, God forbid, putting a sell rating on the stock, they might stop taking your calls. They might stop showing up to your conferences, etc. And then the problem is your clients, who ostensibly want your honest opinion and they want to know if you think something is a sell, won't have access to that management team. And access is kind of what they're paying for. Yeah, I agree with you. And like you said, we have had conversations with analysts, you know, about this topic. And you're right, clients, investor clients want access to management. They want analysts to sort of lay out information for them, let's say about some coming clinical trial results, or maybe some historical clinical data that puts new data into perspective. That's what the best sell-side analysts today are doing. Those are the analysts that realize that the role that they play in this whole investing world that we sort of live in is changing, right? And it's really not about stock picking anymore. Those days are gone. But yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, kudos to the Cowan team for gazing into the abyss and honestly reporting what they found. I feel their pain in some way as a person who has sometimes labored over finding like the perfect kicker quote to put at the end of a story, only to remember that virtually no one reads your stories all the way through. So hold your head, Cowan. So that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thanks to Hyacinth Epinado and Alex Hogan, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode. Tell us what you didn't. What are you listening to? Ask us questions or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you. See you next week. <laughs>